for our sins. God, we worship you this morning as we contemplate on how you've made this sacrifice for us. And it is all to you that we owe. And I pray that we worship you with our whole hearts. God, you are welcome here. We love you. fun things to invite you to. First is Family Fun Night is coming this Friday. If you've not been before, it's a great, it's um, bouncy house, balloon artists, crafts for the kids, food. Um, so it's great family tom- time, six to eight um, this Friday. You can email Sarah. Her email address is in your bulletin um, to RSVP. Um, the second one is a new thing that we're doing for women's ministry. It's called the Paint Play Event little alliteration there. Um, so the goal of this is not the end product. The goal is creativity and exploring what that means. I mean, God has given us all the ability to dream, to write, to express, to make. These are all acts of worship. But like any gifts, there are things that get in the way. So we're going to talk about um, creativity traps like technique, judgment, self-doubt, and we're going to explore creativity by doing. So it's going to be fun. We're going to be basically painting off scripture in an abstract way. Um, And we'll provide all the um, tools and instruction. Um, If you're intimidated by this, think about coming because it's going to hopefully just be some freedom, low pressure, fun. Um, So that's coming up March 7th. And sign up is online. There's limited spots available because it's hosted in somebody's home, actually my home. Um, So if you're interested in it, I would encourage you to sign up um, and grab one of those spots. That's on March 7th, which is a Saturday night in a few weeks. And now I'm going to turn it over to Jay. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 13. It can be found on starting on page 831 in the Bibles under your seats. Once again, that's Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 13. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to the disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him uh, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. 
My name is Mike. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. Glad to be with you this morning. Glad to be worshiping with you. If you're visiting, welcome. Glad you're here. So for the past couple of years, we have been sort of on and off working through the, the Gospel of Matthew. And really the reason for that is just to return to the bedrock of the Christian faith, which is who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And so we, we are now into the final section of Matthew. We've just moved out of the, sort of this, this last big block of teaching, uh, which means that a shift is about to take place. We are now moving into the, the narrative of Christ's suffering. Um, and so it, it just happens to be that, that we will be able to, to work through these passages um, during the, the, the church um, calendar season of Lent as well. And I'll probably make some more comments on, on that next Sunday, hoping I remember to do that. I didn't make a reminder on my phone, which means it might not happen. But hopefully, ideally, we'll kind of spend a little bit of time next week just kind of commenting briefly on, on Lent. So before we... we Get to the actual events of Good Friday and the, the night before the Last Supper. It's interesting. Matthew inserts this little story here. And it's a story that appears in other accounts of Jesus' life. So, for instance, uh, the Gospel of John also includes the anointing at Bethany. But what's interesting is that John makes this point of telling us that the anointing of Jesus actually took place before he entered Jerusalem. So the anointing, John tells us the anointing took place before Jesus actually did the triumphal entry, before he cleared the temple, before all those events. And so you start to wonder what's going on here. Like Matthew's putting this right before the Lord's Supper, and then you notice that actually Matthew doesn't tell us when this took place. He just sort of has this really abrupt thing where he just says, now when Jesus was at Bethany, dot, 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 and he sort of goes on to tell what what happened at Bethany. So this is actually a really common move for uh, historians in the classical world. So chronology mattered, like the, the, the chronological order of, of events mattered, but sometimes ancient Near Eastern and classical historians, they didn't arrange the stories and their histories according to chronology all the time. A lot of times they did it according to theme. They didn't do it chronologically, they did it thematically. So they arrange sometimes stories together so that you're kind of thinking about the same thing and you're, you're thinking about what connects all these stories one after another. And so I really think that that's what is happening in this passage. I think the, the first five verses are, are, are what immediately follows Jesus' teaching about his return. And then suddenly, in verse 6, Matthew's going to leap backward. In film, this is totally familiar to us, right? In film, we're used to a flashback. I think he's going to give us a flashback to Bethany, so that as we move into Good Friday, as we move into the Lord's the, the Last Supper, like we're, we're going to be sort of primed by this story. This story is going to be the freshest thing in our minds as we begin the walk to the cross. And so here's the question I want to ask. Why does Matthew want us to think about this story, the anointing at Bethany? Why this story? So I'd like to go to a slide. So that probably looks like nothing. <laughs> it probably looks like utter chaos. Of course, many of you probably know exactly what this is. This is this is a picture that if you were seeing it in a store and, and you didn't know what it what it was, you'd probably think, "A, that's super ugly. Don't want to buy that." And secondly, you just think it, it looks chaotic, meaningless, disruptive, ugly. But really, this picture is more than meets the eye. It's, it's what's called a stereogram. So a, a stereogram is, is this, it's like a chaotic pattern that when you first glance at it, doesn't really look like much of anything. 
But if you know how to recognize a stereogram, you know, hold up, I've been primed to recognize this. And so you do the whole thing where you get like really close to the picture and like slowly back away. I actually have never been very good at it. I'm always, I've always been pretty bad at stereograms. So I'm just, I'm hoping that there's nothing inappropriate hidden in this picture. <laughs> I'm just not good at it. So, uh, but in any case, a stereogram is, is an image with a hidden image inside of it. So if you know, if you've been primed to, to look for it, if you know how to look for it, you will see that it's not actually chaos. It's not actually just random and ugly, but there's actually an image hidden inside. And once you know how to, how to look for it, so I've been told, I don't, I've never experienced this, but so what I've been told is that once you know kind of how to do it, it becomes second nature and then you can just do it really rapidly. You've been primed to recognize, uh, how to, how to look at a stereogram. So I think that's what this story is doing for us in the book of Matthew. I think this story is priming us how to look at the stereogram of the passion. I think that this story sort of, sort of sets us up to know how to watch what happens to Jesus. It, it primes us to watch with new eyes, with, with, with the eyes of faith. And here's what I mean by that. Seeing with the eyes of faith means that we we are alert to how God actually works in the world. When you see with the eyes of faith, you're, you're, you're seeing with, with this kind of awareness of how God actually operates. We don't trust our first impressions. Instead, we stop, we get close, we pay attention, and we remember how God works. The operations of God are not obvious. Things are not always what they seem. He is the God who makes the low the exalted who makes the lowly exalted. He is the God who, who uses what is foolish to shame the wise. He is the God who uses weakness to display his strength. So seeing with eyes of faith means that, that we're remembering all these, these kind of reversals. Seeing with eyes of faith means that we remember God's way of doing things. And so I think that's what Matthew is kind of provoking here. Before we can really climb the hill of Golgotha, we have to stop for dinner at Bethany. So he's priming us to see with the eyes of faith. So in this passage, there, there, there are three, what I'm going to call reversals. Three, three things that appear to be one way, and then there's kind of a, a reversal, and, and we, we realize how God sees it. Three ways in which things are not what they seem. And this passage shows us exactly how God is operating underneath them. So first, the eyes of faith find God's sovereignty where others see only evil. So verses 1 through 5. Again, I think this is what follows immediately after Jesus' last block of teaching, so this isn't yet the flashback I was talking about. The eyes of faith find God's sovereignty where others see only evil. So when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth or by deceit and kill him. And they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So again, Jesus has just finished his final block of, of sort of long-form teaching. He's been talking about his return, about all, all the glory of when he will finish the work that he's starting. So working backward here, some of the things that we've, we've heard him say. We've heard about Christ on the throne. 
We've heard about Christ judging the nations, Christ vindicating his people, Christ as the master who comes back, Christ as the bridegroom who throws a party you don't want to miss, Christ as the master who should find his servant at his post, Christ who withers the fig tree, Christ who overthrows the powers, Christ who dismantles the old temple to build his people into a new one, Christ who cries over the fate of Jerusalem. It's been a ride for a couple months. And suddenly at the close of it all, he turns to his disciples who are probably awed by what they've heard, right? Like, I mean, if, if you had just been hit with all of that in basically one teaching, right? <laughs> like, just three hours of that, you'd be amazed, you'd be impressed, maybe you'd be raring to go and get something done. And suddenly Jesus tells them, don't forget, before my glory comes my suffering. Before my glory comes my suffering. He reminds them of something he's told them before. The Son of Man must be given over to the hands of sinners and this time he adds a detail that, that hasn't been present in, in the other predictions that he's, that he's made in the book of Matthew. He adds the detail that he will be crucified. That when the Son of Man is handed over to the, into the hands of sinners, it will be so that he suffers crucifixion. So I think we all basically know what crucifixion is. We have crosses in you know, every church, and, and some people wear crosses, and they don't even necessarily identify with Christ at all. So I think we all know what crucifixion is. I mean, essentially, someone would be hung from a, a cross beam, either nailed or tied to it. Uh, they could be very high up, or, or disturbingly, they would sometimes make them really low to the ground and line roads with them so that people could make eye contact before they spit. And, and cruci- crucifixion is very excru- excruciating. I mean, you essentially die by suffocation. And if you're not getting on with it fast enough, oftentimes... Guards would come by and break your legs to, to speed up the process. It was horrifying. I mean, a, a, a horrifying mode of, of torture and execution. So we, we, we all know what crucifixion was. We don't always remember what it meant. Crucifixion was not just pain. It was shame. Crucifixion was the death of the cursed. It was the death of the rabble. It was the death of the contemptible. It was the death of people the government wanted to make an example of. So typically you died publicly and naked. Your last moments of consciousness were were given up in full view of whoever cared to watch and whoever cared to jeer. It was the kind of death designed to strip every ounce of dignity away from the object from the victim to make them essentially an object to to take their humanity from them. It was considered the destiny of the worst kinds of people. One of the most scandalous claims of the early church was the claim that Messiah had not only come, but that Messiah had been crucified. When Jesus predicted his, his death in the book of Matthew, one of his disciples actually tried to rebuke him. That was the, the disciple Peter. He comes up to him and says, far be it from you to say that Messiah should die. And Jesus hadn't even mentioned crucifixion yet. Shameful death. Messiah will not only die, but not like dignified on his deathbed, surrounded by loved ones. Crucified. Far be it from you to say such a thing, Peter tells Jesus. Almost scolding Jesus like he'd said a naughty word. Messiahs don't get unceremoniously killed off, and they certainly don't get crucified. It seems unthinkable. And now Jesus is here again, predicting his death. And if you're reading, just pretend for a second that we're encountering the story of Jesus for the first time. If, if we get to this part, I think our temptation is to say, would be to say, like, hey, maybe Jesus is just being paranoid. 
right? Like, oh, they're after me kind of thing, you know? Maybe he's just being paranoid. He couldn't possibly know that he's going to die. And And then immediately after that, Matthew moves us to the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. So this high-ranking dude among the, the Jewish religious authorities. And he's gathering the chief priests and the elders together to plot the death of Christ. And so it's just a sinking moment, right? Like, man, this is actually happening. Like, he, he's going to die. And there's lots of reasons why, why the Jewish religious authorities would have wanted Jesus Dead. So, for instance, his popularity is rising. Their popularity is not, especially because he he just spent the past day and a half schooling them publicly in Jerusalem during the, the most populated time of of the year in the city. He's also announced himself as the Messiah through through all these different things he's done, such as riding into the city on a donkey, followed by a parade of of country folk praising behind him, which is an image straight out of the prophets. He's also made claims to divinity. He also has announced judgment on the entire Jewish religious system, saying that God is dissolving his people to make a new people. So these are a lot of offensive things. I mean, it's easy to see why they want Jesus dead. At the end of the day, it's political. So the chief priests get together and they start to figure out how they're going to capture and kill Jesus, but they need to do it away from the view of the crowds. And the reason why is because it's not just Jerusalem folk who are in the city. Uh, again, Jesus brought a, a train of Galileans with him, right? I mean, but when he enters the city, he does it with this giant crowd of celebrating people who love him and have, have borne witness to his miracles and his teaching. And, and so what the, what the authorities are trying to think through is the fact that, like, hey, if we kill him, especially if we kill him in a way where he's, like, dragged out in front of a crowd, we will have a riot on our hands, which doesn't just mean that we have to take care of the riot. It means the Romans will step in and do it, which also means that it won't just be the Galilean riders that get hit. It'll be all of us. The Romans will sack the temple, right? And so there's kind of this this urgency. They, they want to kind of do this carefully because... They, they want to save their own hides. So they say, Let, let's not do it during the feast. I think that's the sense of what they're saying. Not during the feast. They're, they're saying do it away from the festivities. Do it sort of by stealth, out of sight. So this is looking bad. It's looking bad. Turns out Jesus is not just a paranoid alarmist. He's actually right. They really are plotting his death. But what is God doing in the middle of all of this? So this is our invitation to stop and to look closer at the stereogram. We see the chief priests and the elders plotting. They're working out a plan. But the, they aren't the only ones working out a plan. Their plotting is actually just one small piece of God's plan being unfolded. The chief priests and elders are not alone in the courtyard. What they say in secret will not be kept hidden. Before they spoke a word together, Jesus has already predicted their moves. He's got them pinned down to the day after two days. They aren't watching Jesus' moves. He's watching theirs. Matthew sets up the whole passage to show us that nothing that is about to take place, the horror of Jesus, the, 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 the only truly good one, the horror of seeing him bend to the lash is not by mistake. After the resurrection, Peter, the, the disciple that sort of chastised, you know, scolded Jesus for saying that he would die. After the resurrection, Jesus, ha- uh, Peter has this opportunity to preach to this enormous group of people uh, during the Feast of Pentecost. 
And he, and he goes up and he preaches the cross that he once chastised Jesus for, for predicting. And I want us to listen to these words. So I'll throw them up on the screen. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. So he's addressing this giant group of people, of pilgrims from all over the place. And he preaches the gospel to them. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this is only taking place maybe, you know, a couple months after the crucifixion. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pain, pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I want to say that again. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter has, has gone on to realize that the death of Messiah was the definite plan of God. And yes, he says to the crowd, you are responsible for the crucifixion, and yet it was exactly what God wanted to take place. So throughout the ages, God's people have, have you know, had arguments about how, how does God's will relate to human will. And I think we argue about it a lot because what the, the Christian and Hebrew scriptures actually say is very complex. And so, you know, it's, it's easy to, to, to argue about it and try to figure it out. You know, even argue in the best sense of the word where you're just, you're just trying to, to figure it out. And I'm not sure that we should expect to understand it completely. I think when we're talking about really getting it down, we're talking about how, are we ever going to get into God's head to that degree, right? So I don't know that we should ever expect to understand it completely, but I will say this. It is indispensable that we believe in God's sovereignty. We have to believe in God's sovereignty. It's really important that we don't let ourselves forget or underplay God's rulership, God's sovereignty over all things, all events, all people. What this passage is showing us is that there is no evil that will overcome the plan of the Lord. What we're being told is that nothing is out of control for God. The gospel that Peter preaches at Pentecost was the good news that nothing can stand in God's way. In fact, God's victory over the darkness is so total that somehow evil itself is made to serve his purposes. That when all is said and done, Jesus' victory will somehow subjugate evil to the point that it will roll up to good in the end. The death of Christ looks like terrible injustice, and it was. But behind all the operations of Rome, behind the stealth of the chief priests and the elders, behind it all, God is working. God is undermining evil itself by unfolding his plan. That before time began, the Father and the Son had agreed together that the Son would go and save the world. And he would do it by his death. The eyes of faith see that when the religious authorities tried to kill the Jesus movement, they were actually launching it. The eyes of faith recognize that when they tried to suppress the gospel, they were actually bringing the gospel into being. When they tried to silence Jesus, they were putting a megaphone to his message. They tried to kill the king, but in doing so, they crowned him. 
The eyes of faith find God's sovereignty where others see only evil. Secondly, the eyes of faith find beauty where others see waste. So this is the part I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. I think at this point we're actually doing a, a there's a there's a flashback taking place. So we're we're leaping backward because it's important that that we that, that we're thinking about this really this is fresh in our minds as we're going into the the passion itself. So I think this is our, our little flashback. It's also actually going to explain uh, Judas's betrayal as well. So we're in Bethany. Bethany was a town on a hill outside of Jerusalem. When pilgrims would come to the city for major feast days, uh, like Passover, oftentimes the, the city would just be overrun by, by pilgrims. And so there was very little room, and unless you actually had family in the city, it was pretty unlikely you were going to find a place to stay. So what ends up happening is, is pilgrims come into the city, they'll, they'll make sacrifices, they'll, they'll pray, they'll worship with the community, visit different spots. But then when, when evening comes, they'll actually go to the towns outside of Jerusalem, and they'll, they'll end up staying in one of those towns. So that's what Jesus did. He would stay in the, in the town of Bethany uh, with, with a, a little family that he knew there. And so here we are again. He, he's, he's back in Bethany, and he's reclining at table. So kind of a weird phrase. Typically in the first century, folks would eat at these really low tables, and they'd kind of prop themselves on one arm, and then with the other arm they'd, they'd feed themselves. So that's what Jesus is, is doing right now. He's reclining at table. And a woman walks in. And in her hands is an alabaster jar. And it's full of mira, myrrh, a really fragrant, you know, beautiful smelling oil. And it also would have been extremely expensive. So to, to, to actually, you know, put it into perspective, a jar of, of this kind of oil would be a year's salary. I mean, this would be an insurance policy. For folks in the first century, you know, if something went really, really bad, they could sell the oil. I mean, it was that sort of a thing. So it's a, like a year's salary that that she's holding in her hands, right? Walking into this room, it's a ton of money, and she approaches Jesus and pours all of it out on his head. Pours the entire contents, pours a year's salary, pours her insurance policy. Onto the head of Jesus. And instantly, his disciples are insulted by it. You know, it says that they're indignant. They've been following Jesus around long enough to know that he cares about the poor. He's not a wasteful man. He's often chastised the, the rich for, for not using their resources the, the way that, that they, that they ought to. And of course, you know, we've just read the passage about the sheep and the goats. So fresh in the reader's mind is, is, is the, is, is Jesus, you know, calling people to look out for, for those in need. So we might even be a little bit with the disciples on this one. Like, man, that was a lot of money. Couldn't you have found another way of praising Jesus that could have gone to the poor? This, this seems like total extravagance. And, and we expect Jesus to agree with his disciples, but instead he doesn't. Instead, he doesn't. He, he says this. This is verse uh, 8 to 11. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus replies and he says, you, you will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. 
So here's what kind of sounds like Jesus is doing there. It sounds like he's saying, hey, the poor aren't going anywhere. So, you know, let's just kind of live it up right now. That's almost how it comes across, right? Where it's just like, I mean, they're always going to be there. So let's just, you know, indulge a little bit. I don't think that's actually what what's going on. Uh, Jesus is actually quoting uh, a, a part of the law here. It was pr- paraphrasing um, from the, the Torah, from the book of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy, it's Deuteronomy 1511. The, the, the exact quote is that there will never cease to be poor in the land. Now, here's what's interesting. When this verse shows up in Deuteronomy, the, the point is not, you know, hey, the poor are always going to be here, so why try anymore? It's actually the opposite. So here, here's the whole context of, of, of this verse when it comes up. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. So in other words, you know, the, the year when all debts are are undone and you know it's like hey the situation is going to improve soon you know why care and and your eye looks begrudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing beware that he cry out to the lord against you and you be guilty of sin you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give it to him for this because for this the lord your god will bless you in all your work and all you undertake for there will never cease to be poor in the land Therefore, because there will never cease to be poor, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So first it sounds like Jesus is saying, forget the poor. Let's change our priorities. Let's change our strategy. It sounds like he he thinks the disciples have got their priorities completely wrong, when really he only thinks their priorities are partially wrong. (laughs) He's, He's saying, hey, at any other moment, you'd be right. At any other moment, you'd be right. The, the poor are always among us, and so we, we, we ought to always be thinking about that, trying to alleviate that. But here at this moment, I'm with you. Here at this moment, I'm with you. And that means that this kind of extravagance is totally fitting. He calls it beautiful. For this entire book, Jesus has been announcing himself as the Messiah, right? The, the Christ. He, he is the Christ, the Messiah. And so Messiah is sort of an Englishized way of, of saying Moshiach in, in the Hebrew, which means anointed one. And so Messiah could have been a number of different things. And throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures, you know, there's different people who get anointed. So sometimes it's judges, priests, prophets, but most commonly it's kings. Kings are the ones who, who get anointed. And so what we've seen throughout the the book of of Matthew is Jesus announcing his kingdom. Jesus announcing that he is the king, and yet no one has anointed him. This is the the first time when anyone has thought to do that. No one has done what you do with a king. No one has poured oil on the head of Jesus. No disciple has thought to do it. Certainly no religious leader. Certainly no Roman. But this woman living in a little town on the outskirts of Jerusalem, takes her insurance policy, takes a year's salary, and she anoints the anointed one. This is the anointing of Jesus. This is the moment where he is marked out 
as Moshiach, Messiah. And Jesus calls it beautiful. And she does it because she recognizes him to be the king. She, she believes that he really is the king. She does it because it could be no one else. She does it because she knows he deserves it. That he deserves the extravagance. It is fitting to dump a year's salary over his head. It is fitting to make a big deal about him. It is fitting to paint paintings for him, to write novels for him, to build cathedrals for him, to compose music about him, to sing praises to him, to spend our time on him. It is fitting. She knows he deserves the extravagance. And Jesus calls it beautiful. Beauty is desirable for its own sake. So we, you know, it's been pointed out that, that, that we desire money, but not because it's an end in itself. We desire it because we want to use it for security or for any other number of things. We want security because we want long life, and we want long life because that gives us more opportunity and because we fear death. And so, you know, but beauty, we desire it for itself. We don't want to, to get beauty so that then we can use it for something else. We want to be around it. We want to, to, to possess it because it's desirable for its own sake, which is why throughout the ages, Christian philosophers have often thought that, that beauty might be one of the most important metaphors for God himself, that God is desirable for his own sake. God and beauty both you can't make use of. But the disciples can't understand what this woman does here because they aren't looking with the eyes of faith. They, they, they're looking for what use they can make out of something. They're, they're kind of utilitarian. They only see the, the use the oil could have gone to. And, and we're told that at least one of them is thinking about how they themselves could have skimmed off the top of whatever the oil was sold for. They see the oil for its use, which is why they see what she's doing as waste. But she doesn't see the oil just for its economic value or for utility. She's going to be extravagant. She will use it for beauty. Christianity is not a Spartan faith. Before it is a fasting religion, it is a feasting religion. God has brought his abundance to us. He brought the abundance of his forgiveness, the abundance of his presence, the abundance of his love, his church, his word, the promise of a world made new. And out of all that abundance, Christians are freed to give. We give to bring compassion to those in need, and we give to bring beauty. In either case, we're not thinking about our resources as ultimately something we're going to make use of for ourselves. We're thinking about our resources as how it, how it could serve the purposes of the kingdom. And what we're seeing in this passage is that there are two ways that, that, that we might do that. One is through compassion, and the other is for beauty in the name of the Lord. We live in an age that claims to celebrate beauty. We got Instagram filters, Pinterest boards, perfect meals set out on rustic tables. Everything looks awesome. We claim to celebrate beauty. Really, we're only celebrating prettiness. We're just celebrating what's pretty, not beauty. Prettiness pleases, beauty provokes. 
Prettiness can serve beauty, but we shouldn't mistake one for the other. Beauty confronts us with the meaning of things. Beauty brings us into contact with the life of God overflowing in creation and in history. The woman sees this lowly rabbi, a rabbi soon to die, and recognizes him to be the king, and she responds with overflow, and Jesus calls it beautiful. The eyes of faith find beauty where others see waste. Finally, the eyes of faith find Christ's kingdom where others see defeat. So what you've got to imagine is that this woman is anointing Jesus because she believes he's Messiah. She believes that he's the king, right? And so that's, that's all the meaning that, that she probably sees in it, maybe. But it certainly isn't all the meaning that Jesus sees in it. So here's what he says to the disciples after he corrects them. He, he, he interprets the anointing. Jesus interprets the anointing. He interprets it for the disciples. And for him, the anointing isn't just about the fact that he's king. It's about how he will be king. So here's what it says, verses 12 and 13. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So the same kind of oil, this mira, myrrh, super expensive oil, it might have been used to anoint kings. It would also be used to uh, to be poured over corpses, to to disguise the smell of rot. And so Jesus tells the disciples, "She's anointed me, and it's not just because I'm the king. She's anointed me because I'm going to die." It isn't just about the fact that Jesus is the king. It's about how he will be the king. And this is the biggest reversal of all. Messiah was expected to save his people, to defeat their greatest enemy, bring them back to God. The Jews of Jesus' day thought that one way, thought about that in one way, but Jesus thinks about it in another. They thought Messiah would conquer by killing, but Jesus would conquer by dying. They thought Messiah would cleanse the land of their their oppressors. Instead, he cleansed them of their sin. And he does it by handing himself over as a substitute. So if you had been one of the disciples, and let's say you're at the foot of the cross, what you would have seen is is this man that you fully believed was the king. He was going to bring the kingdom. And not only is he dying a shameful death naked on a cross, but... The, the whole thing has been arranged ironically. So his killers are aware of the fact that you thought he was king. And so they have put a sign above him saying, the king. They've put a crown on his head of thorns so that as you're watching your master die, you and him are both being mocked for thinking he was the king. You're being confronted with just utter irony, utter mockery, just disdain for you and for this one that you have loved so much, who you really thought was the king. And there he is suffering, suffocating on that crossbeam, like beaten beyond recognition. And in the middle of it all, his killers are saying, you're king. And you would have maybe felt a sense of shame. Like you had been fooled. How did we believe he would be king? Look at him now. 
unless you remembered Bethany. Unless you could have remembered the anointing. Unless you could have remembered the lesson that the events of Jesus' death must be seen through the eyes of faith. He is anointed Messiah, but he is anointed for burial. He is the king, and he is the scapegoat, the sacrificial lamb, and the substitute. He will rule, but he will rule by his death. The eyes of faith recognize that. On the cross, we are seeing the defeat of the darkness. We are seeing the shaming of the enemies of God. We are seeing God's ultimate answer to the rebellion of the human heart. We are seeing the justice of God absorbed so that the love of God might be poured out. We are seeing our sins forgiven. We are seeing our ransom paid. We are seeing our debt canceled. We are seeing our verdict reversed. We are seeing our adoption notarized. We are seeing our inheritance sealed. We are seeing our destiny assured. We are seeing the victory of the kingdom of God. The cross is not the defeat of Jesus. It is his coronation. It is the moment when he becomes king and does what Messiah does. Now, there would have been no reason to, to, to take this view of the cross if it hadn't been for what followed. The eyes of faith mean nothing if Christ is still dead. The eyes of faith mean nothing if Christ is still dead. Then all we're really doing is just remembering a very influential and idealistic teacher Worth remembering, but we shouldn't put our faith or our trust or our loyalty in him. That would be foolhardy. One of the apostles said that himself. It's in our Bible that like, hey, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you should probably quit being a Christian. The eyes of faith mean nothing if Jesus is still dead. And yet I wonder if it was in the disciples' head, if this last thing that he says here at the anointing would have been ringing in their ears as some last shred of hope. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I wonder if they would have been thinking about that and thinking, why would we be preaching a gospel if he stays dead? He knew he would die but he also knew that there would be good news to preach. I wonder if that phrase was ringing in John and Peter's ears as they raced each other to the empty tomb. I wonder if it's why they they not only felt a, a sense of, of awe and, and expectation when they, when they heard Mary's report, but maybe even a sense of fear. Could it really be that we live in a world where a man has come back? Yet what we see at the launch of the Christian movement is that this mocked, beaten, tortured, slain Messiah ends up being preached as the king of the world, as the savior, as the one who purchases the forgiveness of sins. And there would not have been much reason for anyone to preach that if Jesus had stayed dead. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith in these coming weeks. That we would not walk through uh, the final chapters of Matthew with a sense of pity, but instead a sense of awe. That we are not bearing witness to the pathetic ending of the Jesus movement. We are bearing witness to the victory of God. That this is how God saves the world. By becoming one of us and giving himself in costly love for our sake. And God, I pray that also that you would, that you would train us to recognize that, that, that this is your way. This is, you know, the eyes of faith are, are the eyes that, that recognize the, the, the way you do things. And that in many ways you haven't stopped doing things this way. I pray, Lord, that you would show us all the ways in which we um, are fine with, with Jesus taking up the way of Jesus, but we're not fine with us taking up the way of Jesus. Where our expectations for what it is to be Christian in our country are triumphalistic and not at all shaped by the cross. Lord, teach us to embrace the, the suffering that, that comes into our lives, to embrace weakness, to identify with need, to rely entirely on your grace, and to remember that it is not by being, you know, that, that it, is, it is not through uh, the, the ways of triumph, the ways of fame, the ways of, of whatever, that, that you extend your mission into the world. It is by your followers as broken, forgiven people following your way in full reliance on you. Change the way that we think about what it is to follow. Change the way that we think about what it is to, to announce the gospel to our neighbors. But that we would be trained for the way of service the way of costly love that we would see with the eyes of faith. Amen.